Let me have you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be uh, finishing up our series through the Sermon on the Mount next week. And where we're headed next is to 1 John. And I thought those verses tie in really well with what we're going to be talking about this morning. All right, um, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your generosity. Um, just like Scripture teaches, we love because you first loved us. We're also inspired to be generous because you have been generous. You give so liberally. Every day there's a new sunrise, a testimony of your generosity. We're blessed to have food on our plates we're blessed to have a place to live. We're blessed to have air in our lungs. We're blessed to have the abundant presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives and your gracious love. What a generous God you are, and we worship you for that. And God, I pray just in continuation of the themes that we've already heard this morning about your love for us, your kindness to us, our desperate need for you, I pray that you would minister to us this morning, that you would bring encouragement to hearts that are discouraged, that you would bring endurance to the weary, that you would bring hope to those in darkness, that you would bring just strength to those who are burdened. God, we thank you that you are the one who is carrying your people to the end, and you are faithful, and you are competent to do that work. And so, Lord, we, we just turn to you, and we ask that you would continue your grace to us and minister to us and encourage our hearts through the presence of your Spirit. Lord, use your word this morning to that end to just encourage us and bless us and shape us to be like Christ. Teach us to be like your son, Jesus. And we ask these things in his name, for his sake, for his glory. Amen. Um, all right, so like I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and, and uh, we're reaching the end of our study through the Sermon on the Mount and before we read our text, I just want to ask you a question that I assume is probably a common human experience, but have you ever encountered something that was not exactly what it seemed? Ever watched an ad for something or heard an ad for something and you buy it and it shows up and you're sorely disappointed? Ever been to a restaurant and you look at the menu and you choose an item based on the description or maybe the picture and you take that first bite with much anticipation and you are disappointed? For me, that's every time I go to eat at McDonald's. You know, I am salivating when I walk through the door and my stomach is hurting when I walk out. Ever start to develop a friendship with somebody and it looks like... All the signs are pointing to this person being a potential real great friend, only later to have them hurt you or betray you. And what you thought this relationship was going to end up being 
was not what it ends up being. Maybe a silly example of this is seen in that movie, Catch Me If You Can. If you can. Man, it's getting harder and harder for a pastor to like even reference a movie from the pulpit, isn't it? But in this movie, Catch Me If You Can, it's kind of an older one. It's based on a true story I hear, and it's about this young man who turns into a pretty exceptional con artist. And in that movie, at one point, he finds himself as like the lead surgeon at a hospital, All he's got is the doctor's smock, he's got the stethoscope and a fake diploma, he knows a few fancy words, he carries himself with importance, and he's very winsome, and he has none of the skills necessary to be a surgeon in a hospital, no formal education as a doctor. All of the external appearances and trappings, but none of the actual reality. And it's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, how would you like to have that guy as your surgeon when you go into the hospital with appendicitis? I would not want him to be my doctor. So keep that idea in mind as we read these words from Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." I don't know if any words in the Bible make me sweat with anxiety quite like these verses. Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of God the Father in heaven. I think we could restate those words rather simply like this. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is in fact a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is truly a Christian. But as intense as these words are, I don't think Jesus wants us to read them or hear them And then feel anxious or get some sort of complex about whether or not we might lose our salvation or something like that. I think what Jesus is getting at here is just the natural implications of his teaching. Everything that he said up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. He's been telling us about the kingdom of God and this is the reality of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is telling us all along. Jesus has not been teaching about the possibility of what life in the kingdom of God might look like if you happen to achieve that level of excellence. No, Jesus has been telling us this is what life in the kingdom of God naturally looks like for the people of God who are filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus is in teaching us about a set of guidelines that we must obey in order to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, from the very beginning, he said that the kingdom of God is open to anybody. The gates are wide open to everyone who comes to Christ Jesus 
and asks him for eternal life, repents of their sin, looks to him for salvation. So what Jesus has been teaching about then is the kind of life that those people receive, the kind of life that will freely and naturally be lived by those who Christ brings into his eternal kingdom. If you truly place your faith and trust in Jesus, then the result is that you will obey by faith what God commands. You will do what Jesus teaches. And as Jesus closes out his Sermon on the Mount, he wants people to understand this is the reality of the work of God in the life of the people of God. He wants people to understand the promise that God has made to all those who come to him that God will give them abundant life, God will infuse them with supernatural power, and God will produce in them works of goodness and righteousness for God's glory. God's people will do God's will, and that's a fact. Way back at the beginning of this series, as John and I were sitting around the kitchen table uh, at my house, we looked at the promise of God in the Old Testament. And I want to review that, and I think I've touched on it maybe a couple of times since we began this series, but I think it's going to serve us to look at these verses again as we begin to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 36, and if you spend any time with me or under my teaching, you know I go to this passage all the time, all of the time. Turn to Ezekiel 36, And I like to make you turn there because this is one in your Bibles that I think we all should know. Starting in verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God's Old Testament sneak peek at what he has planned for the future of his people through the work of Jesus, the Messiah. And I think these verses should alleviate any anxiety that we might have as Christians because they tell us that under God's new covenant, which is what Jesus established through his blood, through this new covenant, God will empower his people to do his will, to obey his commands, to do good, to love truth to humbly serve God and care for our neighbors. Our obedience to God's will as Christians is a work of God, is what Ezekiel 36 tells us. We will walk in the good way which Jesus has been teaching us about through the Sermon on the Mount, the way of the kingdom of God, because God himself is enabling, empowering making this happen in us and through us. His grace is drawing us into holiness. 
Now these verses in Ezekiel are an echo of Jeremiah 31, which says much the same thing. Turn there as well, because I think we need to know these verses. I like to uh, make you flip there, because I think this is another one that we need to know. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, we find this promise stated in a slightly different way. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Friends, we have to understand that the whole teaching of Scripture tells us that we don't obey God so that we can get into his kingdom. We enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, which changes our hearts, transforms us fundamentally, and then obedience to God is the natural result of that change through the power of Christ. I want to say this again because there is, unfortunately, confusion about this in churches. Christians do not obey God so that they get into the kingdom of God. Christians are in the kingdom of God through grace because of the work of Jesus Christ, and as a result of the new life that he gives them, they then follow the teachings of Jesus. They walk in holiness. They obey. They do what Christ did. Look at it like this, and I've been, I don't know, using fish for some reason recently. It's the difference between a fish and a swimmer. A swimmer is in the ocean, and a swimmer may dive under the water, and a swimmer may do fish-like things while in the ocean. But swimming in the ocean does not make you a fish. In contrast, a fish swims in the ocean or in the water because it is by nature a fish. It's what a fish does. The point that Jesus is trying to make in these verses, if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, as he closes his Sermon on the Mount, is that the people who truly belong to him will do good works. They will bear good fruit. They will abide in him. At no point will the perception be different than the reality like you may have been disappointed with through some product you bought someday 
And this happens not because they're trying really hard, although we should try really hard. This happens because the Spirit of God has transformed His people into the kind of people who live a kingdom of God kind of life. So this teaching in Matthew 7, it's not a threat. It's a statement of reality concerning the kingdom of God and the people who live in it. Those who do the works of God live in the kingdom of God. And those who don't do the works of God don't live in the kingdom of God. It's really and truly that simple. So I think these words shouldn't cause us to sweat and feel anxiety as Christians. They should actually encourage us. They should encourage us to press on in holiness, confident that we're going to be successful in our efforts to be holy because that's what God is doing in us. That's what Christ has done for us. That's what the Holy Spirit in us achieves. So I want to look at a couple of these words or phrases in more detail, okay? First, the word Lord that Jesus uses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This word Lord is one that's lost to us in the 21st century American democracy that we live in. We don't have lords in our country. So we have to do some work to kind of close the, the gap of misunderstanding here. If you look the word Lord up in the source, do you know what the first connecting word to it is? Anybody? Master. Master. A Lord is a master. The English word here actually goes back to the feudal system of Europe in the medieval times. The Lord was the owner of the land. And if you lived on his land, you worked his property. You weren't exactly a slave, but you weren't much higher than that. Everything belonged to the Lord, the land that you lived on, the house you lived in. He was the master of all of the property. And to continue to live on his property, you were bound to obey his will. Your house belonged to him, your food belonged to him, your family essentially belonged to him. And what he said was law. There wasn't like an overarching law. It was uh, localized to each lord, and what he said was law, and what he decreed you did. And there was no sense in which you could remain on his land or in his kingdom and not do what he commanded. There was no sense in which you could remain in his kingdom and not obey his decrees. And this is the same for Jesus. If you call him Lord, he is your master. He determines your life. There's no sense in which Jesus can be your savior and he is not also your Lord. But the, Lord, the word Lord in the Bible actually goes back further than that. I wonder if you knew this. Maybe you know the word Baal, 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 whatever you want to call him. Baal was this ancient Old Testament deity that Israel often uh, engaged in idolatry and worshipped. He was one of the gods of the Canaanites who lived in the promised land before the Jews arrived there. He was one of the gods of the nations that surrounded Israel. Baal was a false god. 
And Israel was commanded, don't worship him. He is an idol. He's a pagan god. And the Israelites were commanded never to bow to him. And God was displeased with Israel because often they did go worship Baal. And the word Baal in Hebrew, it actually means Lord. It means master. And you can see the connection there. The problem was that in bowing to Baal, in committing this act of idolatry, the people of Israel were placing themselves under the lordship of this pagan false god, denying that Yahweh was their master, and choosing instead a different master. They were then Israelites in name, but in practice, they weren't doing the will of God, they were doing the bidding of Baal, their new master. They were choosing for themselves a lord and master who is not Yahweh, and as a result, their deeds were evil and corrupt, condemnable in the eyes of God. And the reason why Baal is so offensive to God in the Old Testament is because he's a false master, a false lord who leads the people of God astray. And God despises it when people who are called by his name submit themselves to another master. He hates any competing authority in the hearts and the lives of his people. And he will not permit those who belong to him to follow a different master. It's a deep offense against Christ Jesus. When we take Christ by name and call him Lord and then go serve another master in truth. And you can't call Jesus Lord while another master has your heart. In fact, Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't serve two masters. You cannot claim Jesus is Lord while you serve another. And that's the problem here. These people that Jesus is referring to are saying Lord, Lord with their mouth, but all the while their hearts are far from him. The next word we need to look at is the word will. Jesus says, the one who does the will of his Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the natural outcome of having a master, isn't it? If Jesus is your master, you will do his will. If Jesus is your master, then you will seek to serve him by doing what he tells you. And if you know he's good, even more so, because you know that what he commands is for your good. He commands your life. He owns you. He directs your path. You belong to him. You live in his realm. And this is not a mysterious concept, this idea of the will of God. The will of God should not be a confusing thing to us as Christians. In fact, it's very simple. We've spent the last few months looking at what the will of God is. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is for Jesus to disclose to the people of God what God's will is. To do the will of God is to simply obey the teachings of Jesus, or we could say the teachings of Scripture. God is deeply concerned with every aspect of your life. He, he loves you so deeply and he's concerned with every aspect of your life, but he's actually most concerned that you do his will because it's good for you, 
that you follow His teaching because it's right, that you walk in His ways because you're His child and He loves you, that you live out His wisdom because it leads to holiness, that you love truth and you do good. That's the will of God. His will is that you abide in Him, and because of that abiding, you bear much fruit for His kingdom and His pleasure. His will is that you seek His glory, not your glory, that you lay down your life for Him. His will is that you love others because you've understood how much God loves you. And the Christian life, it, it, it is indeed difficult. It is laborious. It's effort, putting to death the flesh and walking by the Spirit. But it's not complicated. It's really not. Simply seek to put into practice the kind of life that Jesus has taught in this sermon. And the promise of Ezekiel 36, the promise of Jeremiah 31, the promise of Christ is that the people of God who truly have faith in Jesus, they will walk in this manner because of what God has done in them. Now next, I want to examine this, this phrase, many mighty works. I mean, I think this is the thing that really is terrifying, isn't it? These people have done many mighty works, and they don't get into the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, calls them workers of lawlessness. And what I want you to see is, on the surface, these are very impressive people, aren't they? Verse 22 says they've done exceptional works. How many of you have cast out demons or prophesied or done miracles? These are powerful and convincing works that must have drawn awe and wonder from the crowds that observed. Works that were persuasive, impressive, maybe even glorious to behold. And then Jesus says they're workers of lawlessness. Jesus is not impressed. Although the, the crowds may have been persuaded, maybe they were awed, but Jesus is not impressed. Why? Why is that? Because if you've been paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, then I think you've come to realize that the kingdom of God is not a matter of spectacle. Jesus himself was a homeless dude born in like a podunk town. He died on a cross out, outside of Jerusalem. If he weren't the son of God who rose from the dead in power, no one would have ever remembered his name. You're not going to find the kingdom of God in spectacle among the magicians and performers of the Las Vegas Strip. You're not going to find it amongst the crowd-pleasing theatrics of Broadway. The gospel is not the stuff of Hollywood or popular politics where people are oohed and awed by what they see. The gospel doesn't exist to wow the wealthy or exalt the educated or please the powerful. Jesus has spent so much time in his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount telling us that the kingdom of God is a quiet matter of the heart. It's an unseen thing changing people from the inside out. When average, everyday, normal human beings like you and me become enthralled 
by the glory of God. The kingdom of God scorns the glory of man. It denies the exaltation of the powerful. The kingdom of God is a matter of pleasing your Father who sees in secret and who rewards you not with earthly treasures but with heavenly, eternal treasures. The kingdom of God is about doing to others what's good and right without expectation that you'll receive anything in return. The kingdom of God is about pure eyes that flow from a pure spirit. It's about anger that gets conquered by love, not conquers others. It's about unseen treasure where moth and rust don't destroy. The kingdom of God is about a life of peace and joy internally, fearless confidence in a heavenly Father who loves to give good things to His children. The kingdom of God is about a quiet, obscure life that treasures Christ Jesus and spurns everything that men in their sin exalt. It's about holiness even when nobody is looking. It's a matter of the unseen heart so deeply in love with God that its sole ambition, its sole motivation is to make Him delight, seeking to please Him alone. The kingdom of God is first a private measure, a private endeavor between the soul and God, and it rejects the public sphere where men parade to receive the praise of other men. To state it simply, Jesus is not impressed with impressive people. Now look a little more closely at these words. Prophecy, casting out demons, many mighty works. These things are not in themselves lawlessness. In fact, Jesus did these things. They are good things. And yet Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. Thinking back to the fruit and its tree, or I'm sorry, the tree and its fruit, Jesus says these imposters who look good on the outside are actually bad trees bearing, in reality, bad fruit. Now, why? Well, I think we need to understand what the law is. At this point, we're not talking about the Old Testament law. When Jesus says their lawlessness, we're not talking about the Old Testament law. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're not talking about Deuteronomy or Leviticus or the law of Moses. Those things, they point to what Jesus is now referring to, but they don't get to the core of it. The law which Jesus expects to see in those who enter his kingdom is simply this, the law of love. The law that we read about in 1 John when Aaron did our scripture reading. The law of Christ. You know the story. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? His response. All of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this one thing. Love God. And the second greatest commandment, Jesus says, is like it. Love your neighbor. The law is simply to love God and love others. And do you see how there's none of that here in these very impressive people? 
They get no praise for their love. And it's so simple, it's almost frustrating. Love God and love others. It's so simple, it's almost frustrating. And none of the claims of these people point to this law of love. They've done wonders, they've done miracles, they've cast out demons, they've prophesied, they've showed all of these glorious signs and outward things that are so impressive. But they have neglected the weightiest matters of all. To love God and to love others. A sincere love for God that overflows into a practical daily love for their fellow man. Again, friends, don't you see just how simple the law of Christ is? The calling of the Christian? Hear me, you can be a prophet, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. You can be an elder in a church, but if you don't love God... Jesus is not your Lord. You can call yourself a Christian, but without obedience to the law of Christ, to love God and to love your neighbor, you don't belong to Jesus. Whatever you say about yourself without love, you're not connected to Christ. You can call yourself a fish all day long while you play around in the water. You might even go under the water for a little while and look impressive in the way you can hold your breath and persuade lots of people, but you're not a fish. And remember, it's not a threat. It's just a fact. Jesus knows that when you place the kingdom of God inside of the heart of a normal person, the fruit of that kingdom begins to flow out in a way that looks like Jesus. It's not that you absolutely must do what Jesus taught. It's simply that because your nature has been changed, you cannot possibly do anything else. And I'm not saying that you're perfect. I'm just saying that you now become defined by the fruit of Christ the teachings that he has given us as your normal, average, easy, everyday way of doing life. And Jesus demands that these people depart from him, not because he's harsh, but because God is love. And the people that God surrounds himself with in his kingdom are just further expressions of his love. They're like little love amplifiers that he has prepared to further amplify his infinite love. The law of Christ, the law of love, must by definition be done where Christ is Lord and Master. Remove love from the core and every action, as impressive as it may seem, it's worse than meaningless. It's actually an offense against God because it's done in Jesus' name without the love that he himself has. So as I close, I just want to try and point out a gospel tidbit here, if I can do that. Jesus did all of this. Don't you see that? Jesus prophesied in God's name. He cast out demons in God's name. He did many mighty works 
in the name of God. In fact, nobody in all of human history has done more of this than Jesus. He kept the law of God perfectly. He loved sinners with a relentless love. And what's fascinating about that is you would expect that his actions would have made him acceptable in the eyes of people. And yet they rejected him. It's as if Jesus said, humanity, humanity, I've cast out demons for your benefit. I've healed the sick for your benefit. I prophesied for your benefit. I did many mighty works that you might believe. But they declared to him, we never knew you. Depart from us, we hate you. And although Jesus was rejected by men, he was accepted by God because he loved. And love was the motivating reason for what he did. And think about this, because Jesus did the really hard stuff. Because he went to the cross and bore our punishment. Because he was rejected by men. Because he prophesied in love And he did many mighty works in love. And he cast out demons in love because he did all of that hard stuff. All of the challenges that we face have already been conquered. Be encouraged by that truth. All that's left for us to do now is simply follow Jesus. To do the will of God. To walk in love. To serve him joyfully. To rest in his goodness. To live a quiet life of obedience while we bear good fruit. And if you've been listening, then of course you, you know we will do this. We will be successful. We will accomplish this calling, not because of our power or our ability or our strength or our achievement, and not so that we can be accepted, but because we are already accepted. And because Christ has already done it, because it is finished, because we live in his kingdom and his love compels us. Let me pray. God, I pray that none of us would be deceived. Lord, that you would open our eyes. That we would not rest on things like mighty works and outwardly impressive shows of power. But instead, that we would rest on what Christ has done for us. And God, I pray that we would live like those who are in your kingdom because we belong to your kingdom. And Lord, this isn't to diminish the difficulty of this. Jesus, you even told us that in this life we would have trouble. Trouble because the world is broken. Trouble because we ourselves are sinful. Trouble because there's conflict and heartache and sadness. But you also promised that we could take heart, that we could have courage, that we could be hopeful because you've overcome the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would produce in your people the good fruit that comes from abiding in Christ. 
Lord, would you help us to abide in Christ through your Spirit, that we might be outwardly and inwardly consistent as residents of the kingdom of God who do good, who bear good fruit from a good heart, because that's what your Holy Spirit is doing in us. And we thank you that we can have confidence that that is true of your people. Amen.